suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Time can't Hello be out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and yes, we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today we introduce Trial of the Century, Part 16. It's a long story, and its subtitle is A Million Monkeys. It's, it's one thing... Um, to be on the high seas of life. It's another thing altogether to be treading on the high wire, balance between life and death. And that's where Clarence Darrell found himself at this very juncture in the trial of Leopold and Loeb. And you'll remember, they have confessed to murdering, for thrill, 14-year-old Bobby Franks. And Clarence Darrow's position was even more perilous than might be imagined in his fight on behalf of his clientele. His task harder said than done because Darrow had to tread lightly as he was performing a high-wire act without a safety net with the potential for a fatal outcome for his clients should things go wrong, should he navigate incorrectly, should he make one single mistake. For for very technical reasons that I will explain, Daryl was going to perform an act, the legal equivalent of the flying Walendas. A single misstep meant his clients were doomed. Doomed. And for those of you who, who might be too young to remember the flying Walendas, they were a family of performing daredevils, seven generations of whom they would traipse along the high wire tightrope without a safety net. Intrepid family members had tiptoed across Niagara Falls, across the Grand Canyon, among, among other feats. But on more than one occasion, several occasions actually, a number of the Walendas had met untimely deaths. Their fates were terrible because they fell literally hundreds of feet to the death. Most famously in 1978, um, 73-year-old Carl, Carl Wenlenda, he lost his balance and fell from the high wire as he made his way very, very uncertainly between two hotel towers, 10 stories above the ground, due to high wind gusts in San Juan, Puerto Rico. So let me explain Clarence Darrow's dilemma in his legal tightrope walk in the courtroom of Judge Caverly. Darrow could not plead his clients innocent. And if he did that in Chicago in 1924, that was, that was suicide. The boys had already freely confessed and fully detailed, you know, in very minute detail, to the Bobby Franks kidnap and murder. And the physical evidence aligned 100% with their confessions. The only unknown, you know, each boy claimed the other had actually stabbed to death Bobby Franks. But from a legal standpoint, that uncertainty meant nothing. Keep in mind also, in addition to the 
evidence and the confessions that made a, made a plea of not guilty equate to the death penalty. Remember, neither family, um, neither families of the two boys would agree to fund a defense of a not guilty plea. They'd accepted both their sons, you know, for reasons they could they they could never understand that. They had already confessed to the brutal murder of a child, a neighbor's child. And they acknowledged, they, they acknowledged no matter how mortifying it was uh, to do so, that their sons were guilty of this horrendous crime. They just had to accept it. And fully cognizant that their sons posed additionally a menace to society. It could not be argued. The threat in the form of their two boys need to be removed forever from society. And so their only interest was avoiding seeing their sons hanged. And as an aside, the Leopold and Loeb families hoped that, you know, from inside a life in prison, somehow their sons might participate in studies um, designed to better understand the minds of murderers, criminal minds, how they think, you know, what might have perverted them, how to prevent them. And I mean, I mean, to the the crime was to to such a degree and to such an extent perversion. You know, how had they been? How did they prove capable of committing an atrocity as you know of the magnitude of the one they had perpetrated? The parents couldn't understand it, and they're hoping studies might find out the cause and prevent another such murder. And 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 from such study, perhaps some societal um, insights and benefits might be achieved. And that was her only hope. That was their only solace in the situation. Beyond that, the two families, two disgraced families, they had no other objectives. Remember, also, Clarence Darrow wouldn't have taken on the case but for his ability to showcase his long-held arguments in opposition to the death penalty. So the, the precise technical problem that Clarence Darrow faced was this. If the boys were to maintain a not guilty by reason of insanity defense, it was not going to be an option because an insanity defense as a matter of Illinois law, somewhat quirky, but it was a matter of Illinois law. It required an insanity defense, required the court to impanel a jury. And under Illinois law, only a jury was empowered to rule on the question, the validity of an insanity defense. I mean, it's a most curious provision, I admit, uh, you know, under Illinois law. It, it, but only a jury consisting, and this is what's weird about it, only a jury consisting of 12 untrained, common, inexperienced laymen had the power to determine the validity of a defense argument of insanity. Referring the matter of competency or incompetency of the defendants might have been ordered by law to be brought forward in, in, in front of a panel of medical experts or a legal panel experienced in such a technical manner, you know, or perhaps left to the determination of an experienced trial judge, this would seemingly be a more rational, more reasonable approach um, for the Illinois legislature to have adopted 
rather than requiring an insanity defense, such a technical determination be left to a, the, the discretion, discretion and the judgment of 12 random untrained citizens. I mean, this, this is insane. But such was Illinois law. It demanded a jury determination in such matters and only a determine, jury determination. Hmm, very odd. But the court, the court was bound to follow the law in the state of Illinois. And state's attorney Robert Crow and his prosecutorial team was there to insist that all procedural rules of law were followed precisely. And Darrow and the world at large recognized a Chicago jury in 1924, in this case, would never, never reach the determination that two defendants were legally insane at the time of the murder and therefore would get away with it. In a million years, with a million monkeys pounding away madly on a million Underwood typewriters, not one of those mon monkeys would ever have typed the words um, we find the defendants, Leopold and Loeb, to be legally insane. That was just not going to happen. Those monkeys would never type those words, and neither would a Chicago jury. It wasn't going to happen. The only outcome a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity would produce would be a conviction and the subsequent hanging of both of the defendants as they'd elected to legally tie their defenses together. So what Daryl wanted was to plead the defendants guilty. The guilty plea would negate the necessity of impaneling a jury. That meant only a sentencing hearing in front of Judge Caverly. No jury needed. Illinois permitted the prosecution to argue to the court during um, the sentencing phase the existence of any aggravating circumstances that they would want to bring to the court's attention, which would support demands for the harshest possible sentence to be meted out to the defendants. Illinois law also then permitted the defense to make its case by way of argument for mitigating punishment. It was right here that Clarence Darrell faced his most serious legal conundrum. That legal tightrope had to be walked very carefully with no missteps. For missteps meant certain death to Leopold and Loeb. In mitigation, Darrow wished to show that the boys were of, of such diminished capacity that they were not fully responsible for their actions and therefore should not be hanged for their crimes to which they'd already confessed and admitted guilt. But if Darrow argued they were so impaired as to be insane, then the prosecution certainly and the court most likely would revert to Illinois law and demand a jury be impaneled as only the jury had the legal authority to determine the validity of an insanity defense. So Darrow, in reality, was seeking to argue insanity as a mitigating factor in sentencing, but not to argue insanity as a defense to the crime. If permitted to do so, Darrow would have successfully maneuvered himself into a position by which he would argue the boy's state of mind was a mitigating factor in sentencing for a learned judge only to consider. A judge, by the way, with a pronounced history, as it turns out, you know, a track record, a known soft spot for youthful offenders, a friendly judge, if you will. If Judge Caverly permitted 
Darrow to argue in this fashion of severely diminished capacity, but not insanity, Darrow would avoid having to make the same argument to an unsympathetic jury that would be bound to reject the argument of impairment and hang his clients. So Darrow would then argue in mitigation of punishment, the judge ought to show some mercy, impose a sentence of life imprisonment, and not hang the boys. Robert Crow, as state's attorney, he knew exactly what was happening here, and he wasn't fooled by Darrow's ploy. So to change the boy's original month-old plea, which was a standard guilty, and to change it to not guilty, but with extenuating circumstances to be argued only to the court during the sentencing phase of the trial, you know, thus circumventing Illinois law requiring a jury need hear such argument and decide on its merits. Crow knew Darrow's claim as to the existence of extenuating circumstances in mitigation of punishment meant one thing only. It was nothing more than a crafty attempt to plead mental incompetency, i.e. insanity, as a mitigating factor and argue it just to the judge. And Darrow argued to Judge Caverly, the state was exercising its right under the law to argue to the court its case for aggravating circumstances in the form of documentary evidence and testimony. You know, and by the way, as a matter of record, Crow for the prosecution called to the stand 81 witnesses when making his case for aggravating circumstances, including experts in the field of psychology, psychiatry, behavioral science. And so Darrell argued before Judge Caverly, he was not making an end around on an insanity defense, but merely exercising the defendant's rights under the same provisions of the law that permitted the prosecution to argue in favor of aggravation. He was arguing in favor of mitigation. And he would ask, why would the court possibly object? Why would the court be unwilling to listen, to entertain expert testimony offered by the country's foremost psychological authorities as to the boy's mental state as evidence in favor of mitigation of punishment? Why would the court not want to hear the argument? Isn't that what judges do? Now, Robert Crow, as the state's attorney, he objected strenuously and he argued this was subterfuge and that should the defense offer up an insanity defense during the sentencing phase, he would immediately demand the court impanel a jury as was required by Illinois law. He also had mentioned um, to his later chagrin that in his opinion, this was a defense attempt to eliminate the jury and have a decision made by a friendly judge. And this definitely crossed a line too and insulted Caverly. And and it questioned his his integrity. This is not a good uh, move on the part of Robert Crow, whose attempts at apology didn't get him very far. The judge was pissed. I mean, Crow was probably right. But he shouldn't have said it. Embarrassed the judge in open court. You know, understanding the fine line of distinction Darrell was now walking, Caverly ruled he was willing to listen to any and all evidence offered in mitigation of punishment. 
So now Daryl was able to introduce his psych and behavioral expert testimony, put them on the stand to testify to the boys, his, his client's mental and emotional impairment. But Daryl had to make sure in advance that his experts knew none of them, nor he himself, could ever make the claim that the defendants were insane. This had to be avoided at all costs. If that position were taken, you know, that anybody mentioned the boys were insane, boom, Crow would demand a jury be impaneled. And so thus began this three-month sentencing phase, this tightrope walk of Clarence Darrell on behalf of Leopold and Loeb. And Darrell and the prosecution brought in basically dueling experts to testify. And the state's experts, you know, no surprise, they found the boys completely sane. And this is not shocking. The defense's experts argue that the boys were significantly mentally impaired, but they never claimed the boys were insane. And Darrow arranged expert after expert to testify as to the defendant's incredible intellects, but equally warped emotional stability and development. They were unstable. And by way of illustrating these issues to the court, the defense offered this. For example, Nathan Leopold's IQ score was literally off the charts. On the Stanford Binet scale, he scored an improbable 210 to 220. Yet his emotional level registered as the equivalent of a seven-year-old. As for mental impairment, the two defendants demonstrated a near complete absence of human emotion and lacked almost in entirety empathy, any empathy for the feelings of others. Zero degrees of empathy. It's very scary. One nationally renowned psychiatrist pointed out that Richard Loeb had been and remained a habitual liar. He was simply incapable of telling the truth. And furthermore, since the age of 10, 10, Loeb had lived in a fantasy world where he fantasized committing all manner of crimes and imagined himself a mastermind directing others, always outsmarting the world's best detectives. In the real world, he... Um, cheated at cards, he shoplifted, he stole automobiles, he stole liquor, he threw bricks through store windows. Now, some might argue, including myself, that Loeb was simply a punk. Forget all the other nonsense. He was just a vandal and a thief. Further testimony showed that only a few months previously, along with Nathan Leopold, each packing heat in the form of loaded revolvers, far, far less common then, in 1923, then now, where in Chicago, everybody's got guns. They, in any event, they had burglarized sh shortly before they murdered Bobby Franks, their own fraternity house. And a total lack of appropriate emotional response is one of the most striking features of his present condition, stated a psychiatric report, which highlighted Loeb's absolute and complete inability to recognize and feel any remorse for any action he had decided upon. The fact his behavior caused 
other people harm meant nothing whatsoever to Richard Lowe. He was indifferent to any harm or pain he may have caused anybody. The feelings of others, and this is really quite scary actually, the feelings of others meant nothing to Richard Lowe. Totally absent any scruples whatsoever. In other words, Richard Lowe possessed the IQ of a genius, but his emotional development had been completely retarded. He was incapable of producing any normal human feelings for others. He lacked empathy. In fact, Lope could hurt people, but felt zero degrees of empathy for the pain he caused them. He did not care about the feelings of others because it didn't matter to him. The people didn't matter. Other people did not matter. And Loeb gradually projected his fantasy world over the real world, such the experts claimed that at times the two worlds were totally confused. Richard Loeb, for example, still talked to his teddy bear as if the teddy bear were real, or so the defensive suggested. You mean one can murder a child because one talks to his teddy bear and he should be provided mercy by the court and escape hanging? Wow, the rich have some nerve. Who would have thought that such an argument would be treated as having merit in the real world? I mean, Robert Crow, as state's attorney, was going absolutely bonkers at this. I mean, the Twinkies defense would become real um, uh, but before that, we had the teddy bear defense. Wow. Is America a progressive, progressive place or what? You know, as for the expert analysis of Nathan Leopold's mental state, him, we will take up that in our next episode of Trial of the Century. Hey, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed as we close in on the finale of our Trial of the Century. Bye-bye. I slip from the harbor, head out to the sea. Crystal blue water surrounding me. Tap to the wind, taste the sea breeze Tropical heaven on the coral sea A little more rum I think of my wife What did I do? Have I ruined my life? Tell her I've changed, become a new man I promise I will and I know that I can when did the skies change? When did we turn back? How am I ever gonna get myself back? The sea's now boiling and I'm getting cold. I've lost my sails, got to find a way home. Alone in my boat, I think of my wife. I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of life. Save me unless fate 
lends a hand Storm it is worse than life, no control The wind and the waves are taking their toll I look to the stars, there's none I can see I'm afraid fate, she has answered me Only moments my story will end And there was a story I wanted to send Oh, how I dream for the calm of the sea A beautiful face smiling back at me The sea is boiling and I'm getting cold Lost my sails, got to find a way home When did the skies change, when did they turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back? Alone in my boat, I think of my wife I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of life When did the skies change, when did they turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back Alone in my boat I think of my wife I'm lost in a drift on the seas of life On the high seas of life Talking to Teddy bears as a real defense. Oh my God, what has America become? I mean, we're just a bunch of losers. Jesus. <laughs>